This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by three Times contributors, Philip Aldrich, Rachel Sylvester and Giles Whittell. Senior Tories now admit that Andrew Lansley's health reforms were the government's biggest mistake. As waiting lists rise and financial black holes deepen in the NHS, the Conservatives may yet be punished at the polls. The Eurozone is threatening global growth once again. Foremost is a chronic structural issue in France. It needs to cut spending to put the public finances in order and reform labour markets to improve long-term competitiveness. Until then, the private sector will not invest in jobs and growth. And to offset the dampening effects of austerity, Germany needs to step up spending. France won't make the necessary cuts. Germany won't act in the best interests of the region. Until they cooperate, the whole world is at risk. Kobani in northern Syria may be about to fall to ISIS, and the same is true of Anbar in Iraq. The conventional wisdom is that America has failed to lead from the front and calls for Western powers to put boots on the ground are getting louder. They're all wrong, and Obama has been right and consistent from the beginning of the turmoil in the Middle East that permanent solutions will only be those that are arrived at by the countries in the region themselves. I'm so looking forward to challenging you about that, Giles. But we, you might be. <laughs> we're first going to come to um, Rachel Sylvester. Rachel, you and Alice Thompson have had your heads buried in papers and interviews about the National Health Service over recent weeks. And uh, it came to fruition in The Times this week with a series about the challenges that face Britain's national religion, um, our belief in the health service. And the headline conclusion in Monday's paper was the one of the biggest reforms of this parliament, the Lansley reforms. The Conservative Party is now regretting them and wish that they'd never gone ahead with them. What was fascinating, we heard about a meeting that took place in Downing Street um, when Andrew Lansley was trying to get these reforms through um, and it, it, it was became completely clear that neither David Cameron nor George Osborne really had any idea what he was trying to do. One of those present described his his analysis as an unintelligible gobbledygook. How, how early was this in the process? 
this was just a few months after the general election. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor turned to Oliver Letwin and said, so does this stack up, Oliver? And he nodded, and that was that. Um, uh, Oliver Letwin famously, of course, also nodded through the poll tax stroke community charge in well, the past. Indeed. So not a great re- record. And, of course, for the Conservatives, this is incredibly dangerous because David Cameron had campaigned on a promise not to reorganise the NHS. Mm-hmm. There'd been that famous poster, we'll cut the deficit, not the health service. And that was key to the sort of reassurance of the voters that the Conservatives understood and cared about the public services. And then within months, there they were tearing everything up and sort of reinventing the wheel. And what I've found fascinating, as Alice and I have talked to people working in the NHS, policy experts who know about it, think tanks like the King's Fund, is that obviously the health service does need reform. There are things that aren't working. We found huge variety within the hospitals, GP surgeries, uh, things still not working. But the Lansley reforms just weren't the thing that needed to be done. What, what, what was needed? What I think is needed much more is much more integration between health and social care. You've got a lot of people, the number of bed blockers is soaring because people can't be released from hospital back into their homes because mm. there aren't people to visit them and look after them at home. There needed to be more com- emphasis on compassion, which Jeremy Hunt has introduced. There needed to be much more encouragement to people to look after their own long-term conditions. Mm-hmm. So there were lots of things that the government could have done without embarking, embarking on this huge reorganisation, um, which would have been much more effective, and without then you know, frightening the horses and alienating a lot of the voters. Because the NHS was always going to face a difficult time, wasn't it? Because it's been used during the years of plenty to 3 4% in yeah, annual increases how- in its budget. It is actually the Conservative... Liberal Democrat coalition have protected the budget in total, but with population increases, with increasingly elderly population, the technologies that we now have for treatment, that's why, despite the protection of the budget, it feels like a health service that's creaking. Mm. And the the shocking figure is that uh, the health inflation is running at 4% on average. So that's £5 billion a year extra needed just to stand still. That's the inflation rate for health services, different from the normal inflation Exactly, rate. and that's because people are getting older, there are more people with long-term conditions. There are huge efficiencies as well, which the health service could be made. It's £5 million could be saved just if all hospitals bought the cheapest kind of surgical gloves. Mm. So there's, lo- there's waste, but that's what the experts said to us is that that's really at the margins. You know, there is this huge kind of growing burden. So we need to think differently about how people manage their own health care and how the the system manages these growing lo- number of long-term conditions. And how much is the problem of the workforce? Because your, your report launch coincided with the strike, first strike in mm-hmm. 30 years by lots of NHS staff only getting 1%. Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary's argument was if we gave the unions what they wanted, we'd have to lay off staff. But is contrary to what Ed Miliband promised at the Labour Party conference, does the NHS have too many staff? Is there something about the staff should be replaced by technology so that people can do a lot of treatments at home? And well, I think you, there's too many managers. There's too many. There's a whole app now to disentangle the acronyms available in the NHS. <laughs> you know, there are dozens and dozens of organisations. Which was worsened by the Lansley reforms. Exactly. There are dozens of organisations in this sort of alphabet soup of confusion. Mm. Stuart Rose describes it as a multi-headed hydra, the NHS. He's doing he, a He's the former head of M&S who's... 
Charts doing with, a yeah, review of it. So I don't think it's necessarily that there are there are too many managers. I'm not sure. I don't think you can say there are too many nurses. What the or doctors? What the NHS is doing is wasting a lot of money on agency staff. In fact, because it's not training up enough nurses, so that that's a gap that needs to be filled. There's th- th- Philip Aldrich. Um. There's there's issues about uh, productivity, aren't there, in the in the in the NHS? Because obviously the UK productivity hasn't been uh, particularly successful over the last six or seven years, in particular. But uh, the NHS productivity has lagged even the rest of the UK's productivity. So if they need to they need to deliver more bang for their buck, they've been delivering less bang for their buck than the rest of the UK labour force, which is only making the situation worse. Yeah. How, how does I mean, that? That's co- right. But the problem is that the Lansley reforms did nothing to they didn't, tackle they didn't. that problem. Yeah, so um, working practices, you say automation of some services would all yeah. improve the productivity. So the NHS, I'm um, writing a piece for this week, for, for Wednesday's paper, about how technology is being used in some places. So up in Airedale, in, on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales, they've introduced telemedicine where people with um, heart problems, breathing problems, they have monitors installed in their home. And they've saved a fortune through, you know, 40% reduction, 45% reduction, hospital admissions, etc. Mm. Um, able to get people out of hospital much more quickly. So things like that, the medical director of the NHS England talks about how they could give these wearable bracelets out to people so you can monitor your own blood pressure, your own heart rate, your own, you know, fitness levels at mm. home. So it, I think people need to become much more responsible for their own health. Is, is that Giles Wittell? Is that the solution? technology is are we making use of innovation or actually is so much of the innovation we could make use for only going to add to the problem because it's so expensive well the american example suggests that the more you buy into technology the more you end up spending their um, health spending problem dwarfs ours um, they spend much in, more as a percentage of gdp compared to the uk per capita yes in yeah. airedale each of the units that they installed in somebody's home paid for itself within a few months because it was the same cost as a single hospital admission but so in a way you have if you have technologies that replace what's what's done already it saves money but because of the scale of innovation that's taking place in medicine the new creates new demand so technology is in a sense a two-edged exactly exactly Clearly, you've got to be uh, very careful. And yeah, there are technological fixes that, uh, like this one which are worth adopting, but public sector procurement in general is prone to colossal waste, which, which you want to avoid. I'm interested, in your reporting, you make the point that Jeremy Hunt is, or at least is seen by his fellow Tories, as a great success compared with his predecessor. What, he, what has he been able to do with this de facto fixed budget that Lansley didn't? What he's done, he's focused on people rather than systems. So he's talked about the patients, he's talked about the professionals, he's talked about compassion, bringing safety into hospitals, rather than sort of juggling around with the alphabet soup, if you like, of CCGs, PCTs. He's talked about human beings and patients. So it's the way he's it's, talked about it all. It's, it's not yet and, structural. And also the emphasis that he's, he's shifted it away from structures. And, uh, for example, he, he's made a big emphasis on mid-Staffordshire hasn't it, to um, focus on the crisis there and how we need to change the health service. Just final question to you, um, Phil, on this. You talk about the productivity gap between the NHS in Britain and the productivity in the rest of the, the UK. Do you know how productivity in British health service compares to 
productivity in other health services around the world seems like the most meaningful comparison yeah no i haven't i haven't looked at that but I, we you certainly on an efficiency basis uh, anecdotally uh, at least we're, we're better than the americans you know i mean it is just as you were saying giles it's so expensive in america by comparison and the outcomes may be ultimately better but the outcomes per i mean life expectancy in america is lower than the uk actually so on that particular measure wow. you'd say it's uh, mm-hmm. the outcomes are worse but i mean productivity is very hard to measure in when it comes to health as well but uh, and, and so there will be very varying diff- calculations across different countries okay well anybody interested in we scratched the surface in our podcast but anyone interested in following the reports that rachel and alice have written and you're a time subscriber please do go to the times.co.uk slash comment central and not only there can you subscribe to this podcast but also i'll put some of the links to some of the articles that they've written so that you can explore what they've been investigating. And I'll also put a link to Philip Aldrich's uh, piece on the German and French economies because last week, Phil, who you are our economics editor, when I was buried in Liberal Democrat conference and focused on the by-election drama, we had another quite big story, perhaps a bigger story for our long-term prosperity than all the others, which was Germany looking in pretty bad shape as an economy. The Eurozone may no longer be on the front pages, it may no longer be an acute crisis, but it seems to have moved to a chronic crisis phase where long-term unemployment seems to be persistent and very poor growth. And in Saturday's paper, I'll put the link uh, in for readers, you have a solution. (laughs) Yes, it's a very simple solution. You just need to install the German government in Paris and take the French government and install that in Germany. There's two problems in in Europe. Um, there's there's a sort of chronic structural issue with public finances in uh, in France in in particular and in Italy and Germany has historically been very good at managing its public finances clearly its its sort of prudence uh, is is unmatched at the moment in Europe um, and Germany has got because it's balanced its books it's got ample fiscal headroom to start spending on infrastructure projects or cutting taxes to stimulate demand and that would that would help drive growth in in the eurozone whilst Italy and France the you know, second, uh, Italy's the third largest, se- France is the second largest economy in, in Europe, whilst those countries start to push through reforms, which will inevitably sap growth. So th- there needs to be this kind of uh, cooperation and coordination between the, the two major economies in Europe uh, to get uh, to get recovery firing on all c- cylinders, really. And, and switching the governments just... Would just seems to be the obvious thing to do because they they need uh, they need prudence in France and they need profligacy in. I, l- in, in I love what you said in the German people that they will have uh, Francois Hollande, <laughs> yeah. a new leader, and and maybe the French would welcome Angela Merkel a little bit more enthusiastically. I don't know, but apart from your very interesting <laughs> idea of uh, swapping these two governments and potentially um, having German Keynesian stimulus and uh, German-style reform in Paris, aren't you really sort of avoiding the real issue, which is that so long as you have a one-size-fits-all monetary policy for very divergent economies, the Eurozone is going to underperform. You look at Britain, you look at America, you look at Australia, you look at even Japan, countries which are able to control their own monetary and fiscal policies have come out of the Great Recession much more quickly. There's something fundamentally wrong still with the Eurozone, isn't there? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, this is a a short-term fix to get over the current uh, hump. If if for the Eurozone to work properly, you need, uh, you've got 
you've got a you've got a monetary union through the currency, but you need a fiscal union to to match that. So you've got to have harmonized tax policies in certain areas. I mean, if you think about a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Uh, the labour market, there probably should be some kind of unified job seekers allowance equivalent across Europe and, and there should be uh, uh, harmonised labour market rules just so that, uh, you know, so that there is free movement of, uh, of people. And also you need a banking union because obviously if you've got a, uh, if you've got one bank in trouble in one country, it can just shift all of its money to one of the other Eurozone countries. And it just, it just, it just exacerbates any issue you have in Greece, for example, we saw in Spain and in Portugal, you know, it just, it, it worsens the uh, economic climate. And so you need these, you need these unions alongside the monetary union. Otherwise you, you'll have this uh, persistent problem and underperformance. And are there any major events coming along? Obviously your column will have sent shockwaves through Berlin and Paris. But <laughs> yeah. other than that, you know, we've got no, election coming up in Germany or, or France in the immediate future is there is the likelihood that Europe's just going to continue to drift or is there something well, on the horizon that might jolt these economies into a change of policy the thing which you always hope uh, prompts uh, people into doing things is a crisis and we have seen through the eurozone crisis that they have they have modernized they have evolved there is talk of a banking union it's not a full banking union there is talk of, of closer fiscal of a more federalized europe which ultimately is is what what they need there there has been progress but unfortunately it's this there's just this chronic problem of lack of private sector investment because no one really trusts their core. But uh, the most immediate thing on the horizon is uh, the European Central Bank is doing uh, stress tests of the European banking system. And this is to really clear out all of the rubbish that is in the We've European banks. We've heard this banks. once or twice before. The, this is different. We've had the European <laughs> Banking Authority in the past doing it. That that had, was in, ad, in hoc to the political operators of the uh, through the European Commission. But the European Central Bank is it, it, its its whole credibility will depend on whether it can actually push through um, proper uh, you know proper sort of cleansing of the European mm. banking system and if they they, they can't really jeopardise their credibility here this is and as they're as they're an independent institution and with so much authority um, the 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 mood music is that there are going to be some major European banking failures by the end of yeah. this month or at least you know some kind of bailout for them. Uh, Charles Wittell. Um President Hollande to Berlin and Angela Merkel to Paris. Are you going to uh, be a seconder for Phil's thesis? I think it's a great uh, it's a great strategy. It reminds me a little bit of Walter Russell Mead advising uh, the U.S. to buy Siberia for four trillion dollars at the end of the Cold War and solve everyone's problems. <laughs> um, but. Uh, 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 it may be too late, but there is another event coming down 
the Pike, and that is a French election in 2017, uh, with Sarko possibly running. Couldn't I mean Quite some time away? Yes, but if we accept just for the moment, for the sake of argument, that scrapping the euro isn't going to happen right Fair away. Fair enough. <laughs> um, we are going to get that election. We could have Sarko back. Um, and, and if there's one person who might actually deliver the, what the, the, the structural reforms that France so urgently needs, might that be enough? You know, you tear up the ridiculous labour laws that they have. And Sarko was hardly a great reformer last time. Though, he's learned, he? He, he learned from his you mistakes think, and he said really, so. Do you believe that? Well, You're a very trusting fellow, Giles. Uh, I, we're going to get on to that in a second, <laughs> aren't we? But um, I, I, he says he's learned from his mistakes. Yeah, nobody, t- nobody else shows the remotest sign of tackling the real problems. Well, he's, yeah, he, he, he raised taxes to deal with the deficit, which is very sort of in keeping with the socialists, what the socialists mm. got on and did. And, of, co- of course, initially they raised taxes again to deal with the deficit. But the problem is that France has got such a high level of expenditure that it's unsustainable. And so... The socialists are now even reducing, they've committed to reducing spending. So maybe Sarko, if he has, you know, got religion on this issue, he would go harder. But it, it, the mood music is changing. So just finally to you, Rachel, um, George Osborne, we're very glad he does not have these problems of 3% growth in the economy. The only real challenge he has is to ensure that everyone benefits from the recovery. Yeah, but don't you think it's fascinating that actually no man's an island, that Osborne, he, he, the British economy does depend on the yeah. Eurozone to some extent, and it's it, however much Osborne does what he's doing here and hopes that Britain's on the right He'll track. He'll be dragged down by Europe. Could easily be, and that's... But in know, a way, that makes the... the U- out of his control. But that makes the UK recovery almost more, more impressive in a way, doesn't it? The fact that the UK is growing when its principal export markets are quite so depressed if Europe was buoyant, how much more robust the UK recovery would be? Or am I stretching things too far, Phil? No, it would. I mean, we'd have more of a manufacturing bounce. Um, we have a few a few percentage, or not percentage, but, um, but basis points of a correction, of an improvement there, definitely. OK, well, thanks, Phil. And our final topic, Giles, is your controversial suggestion that Obama is getting it right in the Middle East. Remind us of your of the case you set out for us at the beginning of the podcast. Obama is the only world leader to have responded with any consistency to the Arab Spring and everything that that has followed. After revolutions in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya and Syria, he has uh, stuck to one overriding message, which is, if I may paraphrase, you guys need to sort this out ultimately for yourselves. He's done that because it is obvious on its face. It is a basic tenet of uh, the democracy that we all hope that these countries will eventually adopt in some form. He's done it because the US brand has been so tarnished by a decade of war in, in, in the region. He's done it because that war has made a further deep entanglement, military entanglement, or, or indeed nation-building entanglement in the region is simply unacceptable to the American electorate and he has done it because it's the it's the only plausible response the only way you can achieve any consistency given that what's happening on the ground is so complex okay look um he he ridiculed Mitt Romney when Mitt Romney said in the last presidential election debates that Russia was going to be a threat he after of course Obama reset relations with Mm -hmm. Russia pretending it was a as a friend he declared his red line on chemical weapons in Syria and then of course when that red line was crossed he basically 
did nothing. And as Leon Panetta, his own former defence secretary, has said, he withdrew troops from Iraq when all the advice of the military generals and Leon Panetta's advice as well was to keep a troop presence there. Now, you may be right. Ultimately, the countries in the region need to find their own solutions. But surely with American help, the fact that America withdrew from Iraq and may be about to withdraw in the same way from Afghanistan, these fragile young states need the kind of support that only America can give. I, I would say he's been a disastrous foreign policy president. Well, let's take them one at a time. Romney and Russia, you're right, but as I often say to my children, separate issue. Okay. Uh, we're talking about, about, about the Middle I'm just East making here. the wider case against Obama. Which, um, but, uh, as you do at every opportunity, <laughs> Tim. On, on, on the Middle East, let me read a little bit from the speech he just gave in, in West Point. This uh, was a few months ago now. Uh, last month. Last month. Uh, and on um, his willingness to use military force in general. The United States, he said, will use military force unilaterally if necessary when our core interests demand it, when our people are threatened, when our livelihoods are at stake, when the security of our allies is in danger. Uh, on the other hand, when issues of global concern do not pose a direct threat to the United States, etc., we will, we will seek to build coalitions. None of the uh, crises in the Middle East since... Uh, a, a market trader in Tunisia immolated himself in 2011, has come close to that perfectly rational threshold for the use of military force. In every other case, he's done what he said he would do, which is try very, very hard, much harder than his predecessors, to build coalitions. That was uh, a central prerequisite for action in Libya and again in Syria. Of course it's messy, but I submit that it's a lot better than wading in rockets first without having thought through the consequences sufficiently mm. and, and and of course you get it in the neck for appearing timid but uh, I submit that history will be kinder to him. But ISIS at the moment in terms of the land that they occupy, the resources they have under the control, the, the, the ability to strike their neighbours is much greater than Al-Qaeda ever had and um, it's not at the moment being uh, degraded, let alone destroyed, to use Obama's um, objectives, and partly because a lot of generals, Panetta, John McCain, other U.S. officials are saying, is this unwillingness to use ground forces. Yes, mm -hmm. he has the alliance, but he's simply not doing the necessary yeah. minimum to push ISIS back, which I know we agree is, is a hugely barbaric threat to the region and potentially to ourselves. Mm. Gen generals will always advocate the use of, of their tools. That's their job. And it is very often the job of, Amer of an American president to uh, aim off from that sure. advice and make his own decision as, as a civilian. Boots on the ground will be needed in the end. And those boots have to be first and foremost, as John Kerry said yesterday, Iraqi boots in Iraq and Syrian boots in Syria. And, uh, but potentially with U.S., support because what we saw when Mosul fell was that the Iraqi troops just weren't well led enough partly because um, Malachi had put in his own sort of political mm -hmm. people replacing the officer corps they just weren't well led enough to stand up to us. No question about that the Iraqi army has been a complete disaster and mm -hmm. that is one of the main lessons of the 
the ISIS disaster. But ultimately, it's a bit like a banking crisis. There's moral hazard if governments step in too quickly or willingly. And in the Middle East, there's moral hazard if the US steps in too quickly or too willingly. We've got to find some grown-ups in the region to, to do their own leading. Oh, the, my the goodness. Fa- <laughs> the, the <laughs> it's fa- no, no. It, it is too simple, but uh, too often said that the failure of leadership in the Middle East is an American failure of leadership. Mm. The failure of leadership is in Riyadh and Tehran and sure. all over. I just wonder if we have to wait for grown-ups in the region to emerge. We really are in trouble. Rachel, Phil, you've been listening to <laughs> me go at um, Giles. Do you buy Rachel first? Um, his basic thesis? I just think there's a danger of Britain and America overreacting to the Iraq war and going too far in the other direction. And as with the economy, so on security, you know, the world is increasingly integrated. The threats on one side of the world come very quickly to our own shores. Mm. And there's a danger of not acting as well as a danger in acting. And I think I don't know whether this is your reading, Rachel. I think David Cameron would probably go further. He may certainly would extend the war to Syria, if only bombing. I'm not sure about ground troops. But I think he's he's very burnt by that vote on Syria mm, a year mm, ago, wasn't mm. he? And I think They're he's, very, wait, very he's waiting for Ed Miliband's support yeah. and cover, and that's unlikely. They were very angry with Ed Miliband about that. They felt it was a, a, a sort of personal betrayal by... In, in Downing Street, felt it was a personal betrayal by Miliband that he didn't completely come clean about what his intentions were and I think that's right They, w- I, I think that they wouldn't risk something like that again mm. but David Cameron would go further Of course the other thing that's changed um, Phil since we launched the last big wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is of course the economies have gone south and um, the western electorates just aren't willing to afford what they were willing to afford 10 years ago yeah, I mean, defence spending isn't uh, isn't what it used to be. I mean, we had aircraft carriers without any airplanes on them for a bit. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly got to be a consideration. I mean, it's such a delicate balance, isn't it? You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't go into these into these regions. And I mean, I don't, I don't know of any interventions where um, you know where there hasn't been a, a negative repercussion in some form or another for. For, de- for decades, but I mean, I don't know, Giles. Do you are there any good examples of of interventions that have had positive, de- demonstratively positive outcomes very quickly? Well, I suppose the first Gulf War, you know, shock and awe, Colin Powell, um, Schwarzkopf, um, succeeded in its basic mission of reversing the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, many people say. And I would also say, and I'm going to get the last word in, which (laughs) will annoy Giles, but also the Petraeus surge. If you looked how Mm. Iraq was spinning out of control until the extra troops were sent in, not just the extra troops were sent in, but at completely different operations on the ground, troops not retreating to isolated barracks at night, but staying with the vulnerable Iraqi communities all the time, providing them protection, working with the Sunni tribes, and then a certain Barack Obama through all those If I largely agree with you, can I add to that? Oh, very briefly. Suitcases of cash as well. Very important. Suitcases of cash, yeah. Giles, Rachel, Phil, thank you very much for uh, joining me today for this podcast. Thank you to all of you for um, listening. To Dave McGuire, um, my producer, we will be back next week with another range of topics and hopefully a lighter one as well. We've had some tough topics today, but I hope you've enjoyed it. Goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.